to John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 895 and 896. You're also welcome to take that Bible home with you. Use it. In John's Gospel, there are seven major miraculous signs. This morning's text, John 9, contains the sixth of the seven miraculous signs, the healing of the blind man. This miraculous healing at the beginning of John 9 is the event that sets everything else in motion for the rest of the chapter. We should note right at the outset that Uh, Jesus is not featured very prominently in John chapter 9. He's kind of there at the beginning, and then he swoops back in there right at the end. But he really stays gone for most of the action. What John is doing here, the author of this gospel, is he's choosing to focus most of our attention on the way in which people respond to Jesus and his sign more than Jesus himself. He's trying to tell us something about the world and how the world responds to Jesus when Jesus reveals his glory. And it all begins with a question. A question as old as time itself. It all begins with the question, why do people suffer? And you can see that in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So let's set the scene. The disciples and Jesus, they're walking and they come across this blind man. He's been blind from birth, you know, baby, blind, toddler, blind, early childhood, blind. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows this guy. He's just hanging around the temple. And they want to know whose sin is responsible for this man's blindness. Is it his sin or is it the sin of his parents? Now what you'll notice is that in the mind of the disciples, there is no non-sin option. You know how you get your census, right? Do we do the census still? Yeah. You know how it has all these weird like like Hispanic, white, Hispanic, non-white? What? What does that mean? There's all these boxes to fill out. Well, this census uh, for sin and suffering that exists in the mind of the disciples, there is no non-sin box for them to tick. You can tick the box that's labeled his sin, or you can tick the box labeled ancestral sin, but you cannot tick a box labeled no sin, no fault of his own or anyone else in his family because it doesn't exist in their mind. Now look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We've already talked about Jesus being the light of the world pretty significantly earlier in in John's gospel. So let's just continue exploring this theme of these categories, right? This This category that these disciples have, Jesus says, it's all messed up. He says, you guys don't really get it. This man was born blind so that I might show you that I am the light. The entire reason why this man's entire life has been lived in darkness is so that I can show you that I am the light of the world. You remember two weeks ago in John 8, Jesus stood up in the middle of the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles and he preached I am the light. And now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you that I'm the light. I mean, you understand, you hear me saying these words, but you don't get it. It's not really sinking in, so I'm going to show you exactly what I mean. And then he gives light to the dark eyes of this blind man. He restores his sight. Now, as far as the disciples and their theology of suffering... Here's what you need to know. Everyone, 
Everyone has a theology of suffering. Whether it's good or bad is another question. Whether they are aware of their own theology of suffering is another question. Whether they would even call it a theology of suffering is another question still. But everyone has a theology of suffering. You, me, the unbeliever down the street, everyone. We all have a worldview that tries to answer life's biggest questions. Questions like, why do some babies suffer blindness? The disciples have a theology of suffering, but it is not a very good one. It's really just a 2,000-year-old version of the prosperity gospel, right? At the heart of the prosperity gospel is this idea that blessing is always the result of God's favor and suffering is always the result of God's displeasure for various and sundry reasons, usually bound up with some sin that still lives in our hearts and our lives. The prosperity gospel does not have a category for God being sovereign over great and terrible suffering for purposes of His own glory. Now, I think it would be the natural inclination for some Christians to want to stop me right here and to to encourage me to cut cut the disciples some slack, right? Like, man, give them a break, Sean. These guys, well, you know how things worked in the Old Testament, Right? In the Old Testament, you did good and God would bless you. And if you did bad, God would curse you. And they were under the Old Testament way of thinking. And Well, the only problem with that is that it's not true at all. That's not the way God works in the New Testament. It's not the way God worked in the Old Testament. You know about the book of Job, right? The book of Job from the Old Testament. One of the oldest books in the Old Testament. The entire book of Job is one big theological demonstration that bad things can in fact happen to God's people for reasons that have nothing to do with their sin and everything to do with God's good, wise, and sovereign purposes for His own glory. It's an entire book trying to show that truth. When you stop and think about it, this scenario here is actually a a microcosm, a little mini representation of the book of Job, right? You can think about the book of Job as kind of like the three-hour art house film, kind of rolling out the theology. This little story here in John 9 is kind of like the TikTok version of that, right? So the blind man is like Job, right? He's suffering for reasons that have nothing to do with his sin and everything to do with God's greater purposes in the world, not even for his life, for the world. Then there are the disciples. The disciples, who are they like? Job's friends, right? They misunderstand the nature of suffering and sin. They are just certain that sin must be the root cause of this suffering. And then there's Jesus. Jesus is God, of course. Jesus is the one who knows what's going on behind the scenes, and he explains what's going on behind the scenes. He's the one who says that God is working wonders for the glory of his name, and he has to come along and correct the false assumptions of those who misunderstand. Now, here's the thing. The disciples, they almost certainly knew the story of Job well, and yet they didn't get it. The word hadn't really worked its true meaning into their hearts. It hadn't really shaped their theology But thankfully, Jesus is there, and he tweaks their theology, and he drives the point home. He heals the man. And then after Jesus gives their theology tune-up and and heals the man, you know, he makes the mud mask, right? Two parts mud, one part spit, right? Go to the pool, wash your eyes, all that stuff. That's when things really begin to get interesting. When the locals see that this blind man has been healed... They're absolutely blown away. They begin to talk amongst themselves. Is this really, is that, is that John? Jim, whatever, I don't know. Probably Joshua. It's a good Israelite name. Is that really him? The guy that we've seen sitting here blind his whole life? Could this be him? No, it can't be him. The people begin to argue amongst themselves, right? So what do they do? They decide to interrogate the man. They ask, how is this possible? And the guy says, Jesus healed me. And the people go, well, who healed you? What guy? And Jesus who? And where is he? And the the man says, I don't know. 
And finally, the people realize that they're dealing with something above their pay grade. So what do they do? They call in the subject matter experts. We've got to get the Pharisees, the experts in the law. They'll be able to tell us what's happening. So they whisk the blind man off to the Pharisees and they begin to have the conversation. What's going on here? Tell us about Jesus. And the Pharisees go, oh, this guy's a fraud for sure. He healed this guy on the Sabbath. There's no way that he could be legit. I'm not going to talk very much about that. We've already addressed that back in chapter 5. In case you don't remember, you can go back and listen to that sermon. But the idea is the Pharisees have already, Jesus has already healed someone on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were always, already like, you can't do that. And Jesus says, I'm God. I can do what I want. The Pharisees go, we don't believe you. And so the same issue pops up here in John chapter 9. Then a debate breaks out between the Pharisees and the people. Because the people are looking at the evidence right before their face. The Pharisees are like, no way, this is a scam. And so, in verse 16, the Pharisees say, there's no way this guy is from God, he's a sinner. And some of the people push back. They say, "Uh, well, if he's such a sinner, then how can he perform these signs and wonders? And the debate goes nowhere, so the Pharisees decide to interrogate the blind man themselves. They want him to weigh in on the question, what do you think, Mr. Blind Man? Is this man Jesus from heaven or not? You say you've been healed by him. Tell us what you think. And it's right here, after this dispute, that we really get to the heart of the text. So we're going to spend the rest of our time together in verses 18 through 41. Now, originally, this was a four-point sermon. But as I kept digging and digging in my sermon prep, I realized that this was going to be a two-hour sermon, which I know you guys would want. I just have other things to do today. So I've decided to cut it down to a one-point sermon, and I'm going to give you the other three points of the sermon in next week's sermon. So I'm going to give you the four points of the two sermons now, but just I'm going to tell you that we're only going to hang out in point number one. So here are the four points for John chapter 9. Fear and belief, evidence and belief, Theology and belief, election and belief. Today we're just going to be in point number one, fear and belief. So as the drama continues to unfold in John chapter 9, we find that the crowd, the Pharisees, and the blind man, who I'm just going to refer to as the blind man because it's going to be a mouthful for me to constantly say the, the healed blind man or the healed man or the once blind man, I'm just going to keep calling him the blind man. So this controversy between the crowd, the Pharisees, and the blind man, they just can't settle the question of Jesus' identity for themselves. The blind man says that Jesus has to at least be a prophet. But the Pharisees aren't content with that, so they continue their investigation by calling on the blind man's parents. They're going to be interrogated too. Look at verses 18 through 21. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, a really insulting question, by the way, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The Pharisees go, is this really your son, and was he really born blind, and if so, can you explain his healing? To which the parents probably, with a little bit of exasperation, go, yeah, this is really our son, and yeah, he was really born blind. We had to take care of him his whole life, you know? I'm a little insulted that you would ask us that. But then they say, as to your question of who healed him, We don't know. We don't know who healed him. We don't know how he was healed. Look at verses 22 and 23. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. You see, his parents lied. They knew the answer, that Jesus was the one who healed him. But they lied, and they said that they didn't know 
Why? Because they feared being put out of the synagogue, which, to be fair, is like a really big deal. It would have been huge to experience that in that day. Thankfully, we have uh, this, this commentary from John as he writes the gospel, because what it, it could appear at first to seem like they're not lying and that they're not sketchy, that they're not doing anything wrong. I mean, the parents just say, listen, at the end of the day, he's a big boy. He can answer for himself. Just go talk to him. And we might read that and think, you know, that's reasonable. You know, parents have to let children stand on their own two feet. You know, birds have to leave the nest and fly. And maybe the parents are just letting him be his own man and saying, we're not going to get involved in this. But John comes along and tells us in verses 22 and 23 that that's not what's happening at all. What's happening is that the parents have an abundance of fear of man. They fear what the Jews will do to them, so they refuse to answer the question of Jesus and his identity. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, is that really a denial of Jesus? To just kind of defer the question out, to just say, oh, he's a big boy, talk to him, leave us out of that. Is that really, Sean, isn't your language a little too strong here? I don't think so. I don't think so. To be true, to be certain, this is not a full-throated, wholehearted denial. You think about Peter in the garden, right? Calling down curses from heaven down on his head, right? He's cursing, you know, may God strike me dead now. I do not know that man, right? But if that's the only category of denial that you have, well then, I mean, that's, that, that's just a bit extreme. The kind of denial that we have here is just, it's more subtle. It's, it's, a, it's a simple, subtle refusal to acknowledge Jesus before men. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 10. Turn to Matthew 10 with me real quick. Matthew chapter 10. verses 32 and 33. <clears throat> so, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What's interesting about the language that Jesus uses here is that he uses the verbs to acknowledge and to deny interchangeably. They're kind of like the mere opposites, right? It's not just denial, it's also a failure to acknowledge that counts as denial, according to Jesus' logic here. And if you're struggling with that, let me, let me give you an illustration that may help. Let's say that uh, one day, Amber hears me talking on the phone, and she says, who are you talking to? And I, and I tell her, and it's a woman, right? I'm a pastor. I have to talk to women sometimes on the phone. I, I try not to ever be in any appropriate, inappropriate positions. Amber knows that, so she's not worried about it. No big deal. But then uh, the name kind of sticks with her, you know, and she goes, wait a second, I think I know that person. Well, it turns out the woman that I'm talking to is an ex-girlfriend. Okay, not great. Amber's not jealous, you know? We've been married 16 years. She's like, I trust my man, you know? Can't get this anywhere else, right? No, that's not what she's saying. But, you know, she's not freaking out. She, she, maybe she doesn't love it, but, you know, it's no big deal. Now, imagine that me and this ex-girlfriend begin to talk on the phone on a pretty regular basis, once a week, once every other week, maybe once a month, you know? Amber might hear me saying things on the phone like, man, it's really good to catch up with you, or, man, we used to have the best talks, didn't we? Now it's beginning to bother Amber a little, maybe a lot, but she doesn't want to be jealous, and she trusts me, so she's trying not to show how much it bothers her. But then one day, she finds out that in all these conversations I've been having with this ex-girlfriend, that I've not once mentioned her, or our children, or our life together. Now she's mad. 
and she's hurt. And I am guilty. Why? Did I ever deny her? Did I ever come right out and say, I deny my wife, I don't love my kids, I don't care about my family? No. I just refused to acknowledge them, which is basically the same thing. This is what the blind man's parents are doing here. They are failing to acknowledge Jesus. They aren't saying he's a sinner, but they are not willing to profess what they know to be true about him, that he is the one who healed their son. And they're doing that because they fear the Pharisees. You should know that in this failure to uh, affirm Jesus, in this denial of Jesus, they are imitating their father, Satan. You remember back in John chapter 8, where we learned where anytime someone refuses to believe in Jesus, they're just imitating their father, Satan? Turn back there with me, just to John chapter 8. We can start in John 8, 38. (coughs) Jesus says, In 8.38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Referring to Satan. Now go to verse 41. You are doing the works of your father, excuse me, the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You would acknowledge me. You would Profess me publicly, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but from he who sent me. Now look at verse 44. You, to state the matter plainly, are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now what you see here is this this kind of deception. Do you remember how, how Satan tried to deceive Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3? Did he just come right out the gates hot? Did he come out strong and say, God's a liar and you shouldn't listen to him? That's not how he started. He came out and he just asked a question. A question. It's just a question. All I'm doing is, did God really say? Are you sure that that's what God said? Were Satan to be called into the courtroom right after that first question, and to be put on trial. He might plead innocence. He might have plausible deniability. His lawyer might stand up in the courtroom and say, Your Honor, members of the jury, my client never lied to these humans. All he did was ask them a question. Are you sure that that's what God said? Are we not allowed to ask questions? What is this, Nazi Germany? The blind man's parents are trying to thread the needle of innocence, but it's not working. And they are in their crafty deceit, more than they know, imitating their father, Satan. Denying God, not outright, but with slick maneuvering. But God can see right through that. Jesus could see right through what they were doing. Kids, look at me for a second. If you're drawn or staring off into space or paying attention, really just focus with me now. I I want you to know that I know sometimes you try to do this same thing with your mom and dad, right? You try to get around the rules, Your mom and dad tell you things. They tell you not to do something and you do it and you think you can be clever and find a way to do it where you're technically not breaking the rules, right? Or they tell you to do something and you try to get out of doing it in such a way that you feel like on technical grounds you're not really breaking the rules, you know? You're hitting your sister or your brother and your mom or your dad says, stop hitting. And so what do you do? You start poking, right? And then your dad goes, he's swinging at you in the back seat, right? And he goes, I told you to stop hitting. And you go, I'm not hitting, I'm poking. Maddox. And I know that you think that you're in the right, but I want you to know that you're, you're in the wrong, right? When you do that, you're, you're, you're not imitating God. 
your parents can see right through that. They don't let it slide. They shouldn't let it slide, parents. Are you tracking? You should not let it slide. And adults, listen, (laughs) focus. We are no better. We do the same kinds of things. We try to break the rules, good rules that God put in place because he loves us. And we try to break them and get away with it on a technicality. Think about young Christians in dating relationships who are trying to pursue sexual purity and maintain it. And they think in their mind, as long as we don't actually have sex, like full sex, as it's defined in biology textbooks, then, then we're, we're okay. We haven't actually broken God's law for purity, sexual purity. We do, we do all kinds of things like this, you know? Your wife says, promise me you're going to clean the garage, and you say, I promise. <laughs> right? We think we're slick. We're not slick. Our parents see through us. Our spouses see through us. Our pastors see through us. You better believe it. But even if you can fool your parents, your spouses, your children, sometimes parents are deceiving their children, your fellow church members, you should know that you can't deceive God. Right? I wonder if everyone standing around the blind man's parents that day thought, well, that's reasonable, and just kind of went away like, yeah, no big deal there. But God saw. Jesus saw the heart of the matter. Man judges by outward appearances. But God knows the heart of man. So what's the solution for this fear of man that leads us to denying Christ? What's the solution? There has to be one. We can't just you know, try to fight this on our own power. Well, Scripture gives us an answer. Uh, the answer is summarized well. The answer in Scripture, which we're going to consider in a minute, is summarized well by uh, theologian Oswald Chambers. He says, When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. I think Oswald is right here. When you don't fear God, you will fear man. You'll fear the Jews, what they're going to do to you. You'll, you'll, you'll fear for your reputation, fear for falling out with your blood relatives and damaging some of your extended family relationships. You're, you'll fear the financial repercussions of following Jesus faithfully. You'll fear damage to your career. You'll fear being canceled by the social media mobs. You'll feel fear suffering, physical or otherwise. But the fear of man puts those fears in their proper place. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 9. He says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. A fearful prospect if there has ever been one. Right? And remember, usually when Jesus uses a metaphor, he's symbolizing something that is actually much more significant and severe than than the symbol can even capture. Right? So the fire, hell is represented by fire, but fire can't actually... Hell is going to be way worse than just the feeling of a burn, right? So what Jesus is talking about here, ripping out your eye, putting sin to death, it's painful, it's scary, it's hard. You should be afraid of this uh, agonizing experience of discipline that you're going to be going through. And yet, he says, it is better for you to enter into life, eternal life, with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into into hell with its fire. What does this mean? He says, when you think about eternity... And the nature of God and His justice and His wrath, that fear should relativize the fear you have about sanctification. Fearing God relativizes other fears. Oswald Chambers, I don't think he means that all those other fears just disappear and you never feel any sort of anxiety about anything. I don't think that's what Jesus would say. I think he just means that the fear of God comes in and starts elbowing out all the other lesser fears. It pushes them out of the frame. Listen, even as Christians, Holy Spirit, Bible-believing, healthy church member being Christians, we still get nervous when we have to do or say hard things. We still feel fear. We're like soldiers in the foxhole, right? We have to have that conversation. We're getting ready to share the gospel. We're going to embarrass ourselves and confess some sin that 
man, we're really, we're, we're really afraid to confess. We're like soldiers in the foxhole. We're sweaty, we're shaking, we're afraid. But the fear of God makes us brave, right? It doesn't mean that we stop sweating. It doesn't mean that we're never anxious. It just means that when the time comes, we get up out of the foxhole and we charge the line. We confess our sin. We profess Jesus publicly in the workplace, even if it costs us. We overcome our fear of commitment to the church because we've been hurt. We, whatever, you know, we just kind of walk down the line. That's what the fear of God does for us. It causes us to relativize our other lesser fears and to rise up above the fear of man and to move forward. And it will almost never be easy. I have no intention of lying to you this morning and telling you that if you fear God, it will be easy to not fear man. No, it's going to be hard. What I promise you is that it's going to be worth it. It wasn't easy for the midwives to disobey Pharaoh. It wasn't easy for Stephen to stand before his murderers and proclaim the gospel even as they were laying down their coats and picking up stones to stone him. It wasn't easy for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to face down the king and his lions. It wasn't easy for the disciples to be tortured and murdered for the sake of the gospel. It wasn't easy for the martyrs of the early church to have their breasts cut off, their tongues ripped out, to be thrown to the wild beasts in the Colosseum. It was not easy for the reformers to be drowned in rivers or burned at the stake. It was not easy for Jim Elliot, the missionary, to die at the tip of a spear, even as he was professing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not currently easy for our North Korean brothers and sisters to pass on little tattered pieces of Scripture as they are striving to stay alive in concentration camps. It is not easy for a couple to take a stand for the gospel and lose family for following Jesus. It's not easy because fear of man is powerful. It makes us feel like there's mud in our veins. It makes us feel like we have no air in our lungs, no moisture in our mouths, no strength in our spines. And sometimes the fight or flight instinct, it just kicks in. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we must admit that we are fearful creatures. And sometimes we give in to the fear of man just to save our own tails. Which is why we need Scripture to constantly remind us of who God is and what He has done for us in Christ and the reality of our entire existence in light of the gospel of salvation. And then what that does is it comes and it recalibrates. And then we go back out into the world and our vision of the glory of God diminishes, and then we come back to God and His Word and with the gathering of His people, and we get recalibrated again, and then our fear of man decreases and our fear of God increases, and then we go back out into the world, we consume media that we shouldn't, we spend time with people that are not edifying, we don't meditate on the things that will increase our fear of God. We put ourselves in social situations where the fear of man can easily live with us, and that's bad. But then hopefully we come back to God and he recalibrates us again. And do you see what I'm saying? Again and again and again, we just go through this cycle. Brothers and sisters, you must know the truth of Proverbs 29, that the fear of man lays a snare. That's a trap. It's something that dumb little animals running along in the woods, totally unsuspecting, and he gets captured. That's you. You're the dumb little animal. And the fear of man... It's like you setting a trap for yourself. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of the Lord counteracts our ignorance. Here's the thing about the fear of man. It can leave us feeling safe in the moment. Right? It can leave us feeling safe. But the truth of the matter is that we're not safe. We're setting a snare for ourselves. Think about the blind man's parents. After they skillfully, artfully avoided the controversy with the Pharisees over Jesus' nature and identity, 
they probably felt really safe, right? I can just see it now. They're just wiping the sweat off their foreheads. Man, we really dodged that bullet, you know? Even if they don't say it, that's probably what they feel. Like, do you have any idea how bad that could have been? Thankfully, we navigated, you know, that river. But how safe do you think they're going to feel on the last day? When they have to stand before the glorified King Jesus and give an answer for why they feared the Jews more than they feared him. Do you think they'll feel safe on that day? I mean, the words of Proverbs 29 are just mind-blowing. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's kind of irrelevant how safe you feel right now. The thing that should lead you to feeling safe or not safe is whether or not you're trusting the Lord, not how you're handling your current situation. So who do you fear? Do you fear God or man? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And I love this illustration of light, right? We're in this world shrouded by darkness. Darkness represents evil. It represents Satan. It represents every bad thing. But, and we're afraid of the dark. And we should be afraid of the dark. And here comes God, the light of the world. And when we're in the light, we don't feel afraid. You're a woman walking in a big city at night. You're walking in a dark alley and there's no lights you're terrified. Someone could jump out. Any bad thing could happen to you. Or you're walking down a well-lit corridor in a safe neighborhood, right? With the Lord, we are always in a well-lit corridor. We should always feel safe. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Can you, professing Christian, say with Hebrews 13.6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is stunning. Do you understand that the author of this verse was writing to a people who were suffering significant persecution? I mean, they were being, what can man do to me? They can do a lot of things. Man can kill me. Man can torture me. Man can plunder my property. Man can ruin my reputation. Man can steal all of the things that I have on this earth and take them away from me in the blink of an eye. And yet, and the author of Hebrews is a very good pastor. He's writing, this is essentially a sermon, and he feels no problem telling these suffering people, if you fear the Lord, what can man do to you? You can ruin my reputation, you can plunder my property, you can take my kids by force. You can torture me, you can kill me, but you cannot win. The psalmist is not saying man can't literally do anything to me, man can't affect me. He's saying my fear of the Lord relativizes my fear of all of the things that man can do to me. You see that? Think about the blind man's parents one more time. Consider the cost that would have been counted by his parents for being kicked out of the synagogue for professing Jesus, right? Do a little cost-benefit analysis. Confessing Jesus would have meant being kicked out of the synagogue, which in the ancient world for a Jew would have been a huge deal. It would have just been the collapse of your entire world. Relationally, that was the center of their life, the synagogue. Emotionally, spiritually, they would have been outcasts. Financially, you know how it is. You know, we're a community. We're kind of like a culture within the culture, and I'm connected to you, and you're connected to me, and I got put out of the synagogue. Maybe that guy won't sell me goods and services anymore. But how would that suffering compare with being shut out of heaven, right? Just consider the two, being shut out of the synagogue or being shut out of heaven. Being shut out of the synagogue is significant. It's a big deal. It's going to hurt. But being shut out of heaven should relativize your fear of being shut out of the synagogue. 
It feels like every day in our country, Christians are joining the ranks of their brothers and sisters throughout the ages and across the globe who are having to put up or shut up about their faith in Jesus. On our jobs, on social media, in academia, in our businesses, with our family, in our schools, we're being put in a position where we must figure out who do we really fear. Do we fear God or do we fear losing our job? Do we fear God or do we fear what might happen to us if somebody says something about us on the internet for being bigots? My prayer as the pastor, one of the pastors in this church is that every member of this church will be able to say that they fear God above all else, which will lead them to clearly and confidently confessing Christ. Listen, listen to what the psalmist says. He says, out of my distress, and this is true distress, not like some people weren't very nice to me on the internet and now I feel traumatized. No, this is distress, distress, real distress. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. That's my prayer for you, right? Distress is coming for you as a Christian in this country. Bank on it. My prayer is that you can say, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. There's that language of safety again, right? Just like from Proverbs. I will take refuge in the Lord rather than trust in man. I may feel safe in the moment if I give in to this fear of man, but that's not true refuge. To fear God is to take refuge in God. To fear God is to be protected by God. It's to find safety in His arms. Just think about your relationship with your parents, right? You fear your dad, and yet, who can make you feel safer than your dad? And this kind of fear this appropriate fear, it leads us to have a a joy-filled confidence in our God, even in our distress. We cry out with Paul in Romans 8, who is almost certainly just channeling what we've read from the psalmist, when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a man who was put in chains by Rome, a man who was executed at the hands of his enemies, a man who spent a long time imprisoned, and a man who saw This is a man who, before he was converted, spent all of his time killing Christians. He knows who can be against him. Everyone can be against him. And yet he says, if God's for us, none of that really matters. So tell the denominations and the discernment blogs to come for me. It's okay. I don't fear them. Tell the mayors and the presidents and the big tech gurus to come for us. We will experience distress, but we will be okay. Better than okay. Tell your parents, your friends, your coworkers, your bosses to come for you. You will be okay. God put these authorities in place. They did not get there of their own accord, by their own power, according to their own providence and plan. God put them there. Should I fear a king or the one who puts kings where they reign? Friends, this doctrine is so practical. Consider this truth. Putting the fear of man to death is at the very heart of the Great Commission. I wonder how he's going to do that one, right? How's he going to connect those two? I think it's pretty obvious. In the Great Commission, you have been made an ambassador of Christ. And you cannot be a faithful ambassador a faithful steward of the gospel message, if you fear the people that you're giving the message to more than the guy who sent you. Listen to the way that Paul talks in Galatians 1 as a faithful ambassador. He says some very hard things to the Galatians, and then he says this. I can almost hear him doing that. (laughs) He says these hard things, and he says, am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You better figure it out, like today, who you fear. You can't be a servant of God and fear man. Those two things cannot coexist. They're like oil and water. The daily duty of everyone in the service of Christ is to mortify the flesh, and one of the main ways that we do that is by putting fear of man to death. So let's just get practical. Let me just ask you some questions that will help you diagnose yourself and, and, and how you're doing with these things. When was the last time you shared your faith with a coworker? Or your boss? Or a subordinate? Well, if I, if I bring up Jesus, somebody's underneath me, they're going to tell corporate, and then HR is going to get involved. Listen, I understand. The parents had ways that they could justify, the parents of the blind man, they had ways to justify getting away from affirming Jesus too. And I'm sure that some of that is reasonable, some of the reasons why you may not talk about Jesus on the job as much as you might want to. I just want to ask you, is there any sense in which your reasoning there is actually just a justification for your own fear of man? Is there some way that you can talk about Jesus on the job and you just haven't done it because, to be honest, you don't want to lose your job. You're afraid of the consequences. Are you afraid of what your coworkers will say about you? What they'll think of you? You want to be the... You want to be liked in the office, you know? Gather around the water cooler. You don't want people to be weird around you. And this is a weird thing that I found around Christians. I never understood it. And remember, I didn't just go from like high school to Bible college to seminary to being a pastor. I worked a long time just in regular secular jobs before I became a pastor. But I've observed this thing amongst Christians where like they just want to be popular at work. They just don't, they don't, they may not give a rip what their fellow Christians think about them in the church. Uh, who cares what they think? But on the job, they want to be well-liked. And, and sometimes that leads them to just not really talking about Jesus, a functional denial of Christ. Here's another question. When was the last time you brought up the gospel with your extended family or your nuclear family, knowing that it was going to be hard? I get it. There's, there are categories in the Bible for just dropping it and then just living lives uh, you know, that picture the gospel. Peter tells wives who are living with unbelieving husbands, like, hey, listen, you've tried and tried and tried, and they're not listening. Okay, well, just live a life of godliness in his presence, and, and the Lord can use that. I get it. I'm asking you specifically if you have kind of just justified not talking about Jesus with your family because you just don't want to ruffle up anybody's feathers. You just don't want to start a problem. You don't want there to be a big fight. You, you are you doing it for the right reasons? There are members in this church who have walked in obedience to Jesus Christ and have very much counted the cost for doing that. And let me tell you, friends, it has not been easy. It has not been easy for them. But on the last day, I think they'll find that it was absolutely worth it. Sometimes we can get in this place where we think, well, they're not going to get saved. Well, first of all, you don't know that. And second of all, that's not the reason why we do it. We're not pragmatists. We don't just share our faith with Jesus, if we're confident that it's going to work. No, we share our faith in Jesus because we are commanded to and because we want to. It's this weird thing about Christianity. We tend to love the things that God tells us to do because we love God. Moving on, the third question. When was the last time you professed faith in Jesus, tried to convince someone to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus in a room where you knew it was just going to make things awkward? For me, that's my jujitsu gym, you know? Man, I came into that gym hot. I'm just evangelizing everyone all the time, giving people books, inviting them to church, trying to take them out to lunch and have conversations. And I was not well-liked because of it. It's a very dark place. It's a very dark place. And for about a year, when I would walk into the room, people would go, ugh. Now, maybe that's because I was being dumb in the way I was evangelizing, but I'm pretty sure a lot of it is just because people just don't want to hear that. But I want you to hear that, and I'm going to tell you. And let me tell you, recently, I think, I've, I think I've stopped doing that as much. 
I think I, I, I'm a little nervous, like, man, I just kind of got over the hump where people don't hate me now because I'm always talking about Jesus. Now they've gotten to know me well enough that they tolerate my talking about Jesus, so I've kind of let off the gas. Maybe there are good and wise reasons why I've not shared my faith as much in the gym, but I tend to suspect my own heart and be a little, cynical towards my, a little more cynical towards myself than that. If I had to guess, I would say that there's some kind of fear of man in me, some kind of desire to be liked by people at the jiu-jitsu gym that has caused me to back off from being as faithful. So now I'm asking you, after I've confessed, I'm asking you if you might be experiencing the same thing. It could be at your gym. It could be on a play date with the unbelieving mom. It could be the waitress at Chili's or Applebee's, I guess. Let me ask you something, and before you answer, like in your head and heart, I really want you to chew on the question. Is it possible, is it possible, that's all I'm asking, that you don't more consistently profess Jesus publicly because you not only fear man, but you fear losing the glory of man? Turn with me to John chapter 12. In verses 42 and 43. <clears throat> Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So there you go. We got the fear of man, right? They won't confess Jesus. Because they fear man, but notice this next phrase, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Okay, all right, we get it. This is why they fear man. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue. It feels like it's exactly the same thing in John chapter 9, right? There's a little more. For, why do they fear man? Why do they fear being put out of the synagogue? For, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Even as we consider our fear of man, we can parse out reasons that may be more understandable and reasons that may be more corrupt. You fear being put out of the synagogue because, you know, man, my kids play with their kids, and that's not, you know, at the end of the day, that's not a good enough reason, but it's more understandable. But what, what, what John is doing here, what God is doing through John, is he's helping us see that underneath a lot of that is just the same old issue. We want glory. We do. We just want to steal God's glory. That's what we do in our sin. We are glory hogs. He's the sun radiating, radiating out the glory. And we're just like, nope. We want to get in the way of that. We want to steal it. We're like the moon. We're like, we want, to, we want the glory for ourselves. We want to shine the light. At the very heart of the fear of man is the wicked tendency to want to rob God of his glory. Most of the time that we deny Christ, it's not because we're going to be tortured or killed and we're afraid of dying, we're afraid of this immense physical suffering. Most of the time we deny God, it's because we fear a glory reduction. To say it even more plainly and even more pathetically, we're afraid that people won't like us. We'll be social pariahs. And isn't that sad? God has loved us in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has made us his friends. In the gospel, we have been adopted into the family of God. And yet, even though we have that amazing, glorious relationship, we care about whether or not other people like us. So if, if you're listening to me right now and you realize, if you're being honest with yourself and you realize that you have been giving in to the fear of man in your life, let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, let me encourage you to confess, right? That's just good wisdom. You can't fix a problem until you admit that you have a problem. Listen to what Saul tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Saul said to Samuel, <coughs> I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Okay, Saul, that's good. Good job, buddy. Like you realize you messed up big time. Because I feared the people. 
and obeyed their voice. Saul, the king of Israel, your job as a king is not to fear the people, it's to fear God and then to lead the people. But Saul says, listen, I realize Saul was not a good king in many ways, but at least he had the wherewithal to stop when he messed up and to dig into his own heart and then to be honest about what he found there. What he found there was a fear of man that led him to disobey the Lord. So what about you? Are you willing to be honest, to do a a thorough self-assessment, to dig into your heart, to examine your life, your actions, your motives, and to to reckon with what you find there, to be honest with God, and to be honest with yourself. The second thing you need to do after you've done number one, you can't, you can't pick, do one or two, you need to do one and two, and you have to do them in the right order. Number one, now number two, you have to walk in the fear of the Lord and be strong and courageous in Him. It's not merely enough to recognize that your fear of man has led you to deny Christ in various and sundry ways. And friend, if you're here and you're thinking, Sean, I've never denied Christ, you, you've misunderstood like almost my entire sermon. Every time that you've been too embarrassed to bring up Christ when you know you should have, you've denied him. Need I say more? So once you've recognized that, what you must do is put that fear of de- to death. I think about uh, Billy Cagle, who did not know I was going to tell him this. I was going to talk about him. This is Andrew Cagle's dad. Uh, we prayed for him in several of our members' meetings This brother realized that he was a pastor and was unregenerate. Billy, raise your hand. I'd encourage anyone who has time to go and talk to Billy and hear his testimony. Billy, how long were you a pastor? 37 years. years, A pastor comes to truly understand the gospel, found out I'm actually not a Christian. That's a really embarrassing thing. You have no idea. As a pastor, I understand it, brother, in ways that maybe not everyone here does. You've been supposed to be leading God's people, and you realize you're not even a Christian. What does he do? He's strong and courageous in the Lord. He resigns his pastorate. He tells his church, I can't do this anymore. The response from several of his minister friends have not been positive. And yet here Billy is following Jesus faithfully. He's not fearing what his fellow ministers may say. He's not fearing what some of the members who have been hurt by his bad ministry may say. He's fearing God and walking in obedience. So are you going to do the same thing? Are you going to recognize the fear of man in your life and then put it to death? Because they are not the same thing. Recognizing a problem and doing something about the problem are not the same thing. Ask my wife. She'll point out stuff around the house that needs to be done all the time. And I will agree with her. Yes, that does need to be done. We should find someone to do it. No, what we must do is put the fear of man to death and fear God above all else. And when you do, oh man, when you begin to just get a little bit of this, It's amazing, the fear of man that's like ice around your heart. When your heart is inflamed with the fear of God, it just begins to melt. Deuteronomy 31.6 is a word from the Lord for you this morning. You who are struggling with your fears. God says to you this morning, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I had a friend growing up who loved to fight. We all did, but he liked it a lot. One day he got into a fight with a guy who was really dangerous. He was older, he was stronger, he was bigger, he was a better fighter, he, had, he used to carry guns. And we were... You know, we thought we were hardcore, but we weren't as hardcore as this guy. And so my friend was terrified, right? He was acting real tough with this guy, but then he came and hid out on my porch for a couple of hours. All of that stopped when his brother, his older brother, his big, tough, scary older brother came along and he found out what was happening and he, he grabbed my friend and he said, let's go, we're going to go fight him. I'm going to be with you. 
When his big brother said that, it was like all the fear melted away in him. I mean, this guy was on my porch almost trembling in fear. But at the thought of his big brother being with him, it's like all of that dissipated, and he just rose up and walked into the flames. How much truer should this be of us, brothers and sisters? We who have God as our Father and Jesus as our big brother. We shall not fear, for God is with us. Now let's conclude this time in the Word by considering the Gospel and exactly how it puts the fear of man to death. In this church, we are not Gospel-centered in the in the fact that we just like to say the word gospel all the time. We're gospel-centered because we believe that the gospel is literally the answer to everything. So, how does the gospel put the fear of man to death? Well, it does it in a number of ways. We're just going to explore a few right now. Think about this. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Right? Isn't that the gospel? He took God's wrath, gave us his righteousness, And because of that, we don't have to suffer God's wrath. What that means is that the axe is no longer over our heads. He feared God's wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane so that we might walk through the wilderness with no fear. Right? That's what the gospel says. So here's what that means for you. Now that we are free from the most terrifying reality in the universe, the wrath of God, we are now empowered to live lives of great courage in this fallen world. The only thing that anyone should ever really be afraid of is the wrath of God, and we've been freed from that. And so now we can walk in courage. On top of that, the Word of God tells us that in our suffering, as we suffer in the wilderness, our suffering will produce eternal rewards for us in heaven. So not only are we free from the only thing that we must fear, but we are also positively incentivized to walk into present sufferings if we believe the promises of the gospel. Oh, you're going to slander me? That's just another reward in heaven. Oh, you're going to plunder my property? Man, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) My eternal rewards are just going to increase by like a hundred because of that. Take my life. That's, that's just what I want to do. If somebody's threatened to just take my life, you're just going to send me home. That's what I want anyways. On a lot of days, I'm like, Lord, are you sure it's not? We could do it right now. <laughs> oh, but now you, you're going to actually do it for me and I'll get to glorify God in the process? Here is the power of God in the gospel for those who are in Christ. The forces that are trying to do us the most harm in this life are going to do us the greatest service in eternity. Whom shall we fear? What can make us afraid? Now, friend, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, I mean really know him, if you don't love him, if you don't trust him, if you're not walking in obedience to him, I want you to know that the gospel also says that you should be very afraid. I know you're probably really uncomfortable right now. If you're here and you're like, man, he's talking to me and I don't like this. I just want to get out of here. I want you to know that I don't delight in making you uncomfortable. What I'm trying to do is tell you something that is going to bother you right now so that you will escape something that will be infinitely more bothersome on the last day. I want you to fear God now so that you can avoid the most terrifying thing in the universe on Judgment Day. This room is full of Christians who fear God because we love God and belong to God. But if you're here and you do not know Christ, you will not fear God as his beloved child. You will fear God on the last day as his enemy. And friends, here's the thing about all of God's enemies. They lose. And their death is not glorious. It does not lead them into something better. If you do not know Christ, 
your death will only lead to more misery, more suffering. You know how you're afraid of other people right now? You know that feeling that you get, that, 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 that knot that is in your stomach, how your heart beats real fast, how your mouth goes dry when you think about the fear that you have of other people in this life? What do you think is going to happen in your soul when you face God as your judge, jury, and executioner? I'm telling you this because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say it. Do you, do you think our church is... This, I mean, if I didn't talk about this, don't you think we could be a lot bigger? <laughs> don't you think we could be a lot more popular? We could probably afford to put in new carpet. It would be a lot easier for us not to say these things. But here you are this morning. In God's kindness, you are hearing this gospel message, which means that God loves you enough to tell you the truth. He's calling to you even this morning and telling you that only if you tremble at the cross will you not tremble in eternity. The way out is by going deeper in. Only by entering into fear now in this life can you escape eternal fear. Let me ask you this. If you don't tremble at the cross, if you don't tremble at the prospect of eternity, if, you don't, if you're not afraid of what death means when you close your eyes and then you open them up in a different world, what are you afraid of? I just, I can't even imagine, if you don't fear God, what else do you fear? If you don't fear Yahweh, the great God of the universe, my friend, you are blind. You're just blind to the reality of the universe. Blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Blind to the reality of your own condition. But here you are this morning, hearing about Jesus, the light of the world, who can give you eyes to see. I hope you do. Let's pray. Lord, your grace is amazing. Help us to be people who are so obviously humbled by your grace that we walk in this earth full of humility and patience, matched with a sense of urgency that tells us that we must proclaim the glory of your name until you come. Your light is in this world through the church, so help us to be your light. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.